welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Robert Fonseca. Well, go ahead and uh, open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 65. Um, we're going to continue our study through uh, this great book of Isaiah. Uh, the title of this morning's message is uh, The God Who Is Near. Many of you maybe have uh, heard of the uh, poem. Some people mistakenly think it's in the scriptures called Footprints in the Sand. Does anybody have know that? You don't have to admit if you have it posted in your house or something, but... Um, I thought it was appropriate for this chapter in Isaiah. Uh, I want to read you the poem. Um, it's, it's, well, let me just read it. So if you don't know what it is, it's a picture of footprints in the sand, little footprints in the sand. And uh, sometimes there's two sets of footprints and there's other times there's just one. And this is what it says. It says, one night I dreamed a dream as I was walking along the beach with my Lord. Across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why. When I needed you the most, you you would leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you. Never ever during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. And I, I read that because in today's uh, text that we look at Isaiah 65, and if you remember from a few weeks ago, this is a, this is a long prayer, I think chapters 65, or 64 and 65, where Isaiah is... Uh, speaking on behalf of his people, kind of asking the Lord in this prayer, why have you allowed these things to happen, this time of exile, this time of suffering? And we left off in chapter 64 with two questions at the end of the prayer. And it was this, they, Isaiah asked, Lord, would, would he restrain himself from intervening? Like, will you not intervene in our situation? And the other one was, would he keep silent and allow them to suffer beyond measure? Similar to the Footprints in the Sand poem, Isaiah is thinking that the Lord's not there or questioning the way the Lord moves. If Isaiah and Israel were to look back at the sand, they might think and only see one set of footprints, right? And might be asking like, Lord, where were you? Why weren't you helping us? And the Lord could easily whisper and say the same things to the nation of Israel. And in this case, even in a harsher way, as they are carried off into Babylon, 
the Lord, as we know from Isaiah, is the one carrying them into captivity, carrying them into discipline, because this is what was best for them. And that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. And all that to say, even in our own lives, and even if you know that poem, it might resonate, and I'm sure it resonates with all of us at different times in our life. It's like, Lord, when I needed you the most, when I was suffering and grieving or going through some serious hard times, you may question, Lord, where were you? It's, it's, a, it's common to say, Lord, where were you in this situation? And the Lord would easily uh, bend down and whisper to us, I was carrying you. I was there. If you're the Lord's child, you know in Scripture, He's promised to never leave us or, or forsake us. And sometimes, even if, again, if you were to look back over your life, and, and that's going to be true here in, in Isaiah 65, which we'll see, is sometimes the Lord may be, I don't know if this is theologically correct, but just for the point of the sermon, that the Lord didn't go that way. You kind of went away from the Lord, went on your own. And so maybe the footprints stopped. I'm thinking of the episode of, um, I think it's episode three in Star Wars. Not episode six, but episode three, uh, where... Uh, Darth Vader, if you don't know the story, I'm going to ruin it for you right now, but Anakin becomes Darth Vader, and uh, he's kind of going to the dark side. You, anybody, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I the only nerd in here? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and his wife, uh, I think her name is Padme, you know, he's going down this path, and what does she say? I can't go that path with you. This path you're going, she's basically, I can't go that way. You're, you know, he's the one that is leaving. And in some instances, and here in Isaiah 65, Israel, which we'll see, has walked away from the Lord. So with that said, uh, let's go ahead and look at the text. Again, this is a continuation of the prayer of Isaiah 64. And this is really Isaiah speaking for the Lord as the Lord answering their prayer. And he begins by saying in verses 1 through t- one and 2 that God did. God was there. God was helping them. Look at what he says. He says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. So in answer to Isaiah's question on behalf of Israel, where they're saying, hey, Lord, where are you? How come you're not helping us? The Lord is saying, what? I've been here the whole time. Matter of fact, I've been reaching out to you. I've allowed you to seek me even when you didn't ask for it. Even when you weren't looking for me, I was there. I was trying to reach out to you, so to, metaphorically. Uh, and even when you didn't seek after me, I was still there. And even when you refused me, he says in verse 2, right? I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. God is saying, I did help you. I was there for you guys, but you guys didn't listen. You guys rebelled against me. That's God's answer to them. And then in verses 2 and 5, as we're going to read right now, God explains how they refused him. 
Because Israel at this time is thinking that they're, well, they're rightly saying they know they're God's people and they think they're doing the right thing, right? They're going to, they're celebrating the Lord. They're performing all their Sabbaths. They're performing all the sacrifices that they're supposed to do as God's people. But that's the thing. It is mechanical in nature. It's like, hey, we're supposed to do this. We're Israelites. And as we'll see in a moment, as you know, the nation of Israel was also worshiping other gods. So it would be like a modern-day believer coming to church Sunday morning, you know, worshiping the Lord, giving their tithes and offerings, uh, reading their Bible at, at, as we go through Scripture, paying attention, and then Monday through Saturday, worshiping anything and everything else. That's the equivalent of the nation of Israel. That's what it would look like for us, for you and I. And so what did they do? That's what uh, Isaiah explains in verses 2 through 5. And speaking for the Lord, he says this. I'll read the beginning of verse 2 again. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. This is what they did. Who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. So they're going the opposite direction of the Lord. They're not following His ways. They're doing what they think is best in their own eyes. And he goes on to say in verse 3, a people who continually provoke me to my face. So they know, that's basically saying, you guys know what, to, what you're supposed to do, but even in my, right in front of me, you still go about doing the wrong thing. Right to my face. You, they don't stab God in the back. They do it right in front of Him and think they're still okay with the Lord. And he goes on to explain what exactly they're doing. And notice that he says, you continually provoke me. So don't get this wrong, believer. Don't think, well, I've sinned against the Lord one time or two times or maybe even ten times, whatever the case may be. This is not you. Again, as we've studied Isaiah over the past couple of years and see that this is a habitual lifestyle. He's saying you continually, all the time, provoke me. Again, you worship me one day, but every other, and you worship me at the appropriate times like the nation of Israel is supposed to, but every other aspect of your life, you continually provoke me and live like you do not know me. That's what's going on here. And this is what they do. They're offering, verse 3 says, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. These are cultic activities that they're involved in. They're worshiping the other gods of their lands. He goes on to say, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret place, who eat swine's flesh and broth of unclean meat in their pots. So they're, they're sacrificing to idols. They're worshiping at the graves. They're, in, you know, they're just holding all kinds of ungodly worship against the Lord. Verse 5 goes on to say, Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils and a fire that burns all the day. These people not only are provoking the Lord, when somebody tries to explain to them that what they're doing is wrong, they say, you guys don't even know. I'm doing the holiest thing. I'm worshiping the Lord. Or maybe I'm worshiping multiple gods. I'm holier than you, basically, is what they're saying. They're refusing to repent. They're not admitting their sins. As a matter of fact, they think they're holier than those who the Lord is sending against them. And the Lord is saying, no, you're actually smoke in my nostrils. You know, you know, burning, making the Lord wrathful towards them. So they're worshiping the dead. They're sacrificing to other gods. 
They're eating unclean food and they're a pretty self-righteous group. This is how they're provoking the Lord. So even as, so you could see why God says, hey, this is why you guys are being carried off into exile. This is why you're being disciplined. This is why you see only one set of footprints. Those are mine carrying you off to um, judgment. A little different than footprints in the sand there. Not like I'm carrying you through the process. But even in judgment, the Lord carries his people into judgment or, or discipline, I should say. And so now we go to verse 6. In verses 6 through 16, a longer section, what happens here is God is explaining through the prophet Isaiah how exactly he's going to refuse them. So this is what he says. So because they've sinned against him, he says this, Behold, is written before me, I will not keep silent. Right? They were asking, how long will you keep silent, O Lord? And he's saying, I'm not going to keep silent. This is exactly what I'm going to do. Sometimes the hard thing that you're going through, he's going to tell them, is because I took you there. I'm taking you through this hard time to discipline you. That's what he says. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom both their iniquities and the iniquities of their father together, says the Lord, because they have turned excuse me, because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Again, God is, is saying, hey, I'm going to discipline you. And this has been going on for generations. This is why he mentions the iniquities of their fathers. Again, this isn't just a one-time sin. The nation of Israel, since they began, they got in their promised land back in the book of Joshua and then Judges, they've continually turned away from the Lord. This is a generational issue of sinfulness. God doesn't just judge so quickly because you've sinned one time. Imagine if the Lord did do that. None of us would be here at this very moment. God is very gracious and merciful and slow to anger, Scripture tells us over and over again. And so God is finally saying it's time to repay or pay for your sins. Continue it on in verse 8. The Lord says this, So I will act, me, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in a cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy them. So this is a very poetic way of the Lord saying, the entire nation is going to be carried off into exile, but I'm not going to destroy all of the nation because there are some in the nation who still worship me. He's not going to destroy everyone. He's not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? God allows time to continue, and He judges in the midst of time so that those who will, will, who will soften their heart will repent, and they will see the mercifulness of the Lord. They will see uh, God's uh, love for them. But there's also the other side, is the longer that the Lord tarries in His judgment, some people cement themselves thinking, well, I guess what I'm doing is okay. The Lord hasn't punished me yet. And so that's what's going on here. It's, it's interesting to note in, in the world, and maybe you've um, witnessed this amongst people that you've talked to about the Lord. Their, their argument is levied against the God of the New Testament. Well, He's a lot different than the God of the New Testament. 
The God of the Old Testament sees vengeful and wrathful and angry, is always judging everybody. I hope you've seen as we've gone through the book of Isaiah how very untrue that is. The Lord is slow to anger. Right? He's, he loves to uh, be merciful to those who would repent. You know, some people forget about the book of Psalms where God is always offering Himself to His people to forgive them and demonstrating His love for His people. And again, even in the book of Isaiah, as we've been going through it, you see over and over again, God has given His people more time to repent. Over and over again, He's given them more time to repent. It's just interesting to know how people misunderstand the Scriptures and the God of the Scriptures more importantly. And so God, again, says He's going to judge them. And in verses 8 and 11, as we look at this, through the rest of this text of 8 through 11, there's going to be a compare and contrast. Really, actually, it's 8 through 15. He's going to talk about how God's going to bless those who are His servants and discipline those who are not. So let's go through it. I'm going to read all the way through verse 15, and then I'm going to come back and highlight the, two di the differences. And you can, as we read, you can see. Again, verse 8 says, Thus says the Lord, as a new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. I will bring forth offering from Jacob, or offspring from Jacob, and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen one shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks, and the valley of Achor a resting place for the herds, for my people who seek me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forgot my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, those are, are believed to be names of foreign gods, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will bow down to the slaughter, because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. You notice the, uh, the irony of that statement. They were claiming that they called and God didn't hear. And God is saying, no, I've called you guys and you didn't hear. And then he says, and he says, I spoke and you did not hear and you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your, you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. <clears throat> so here God is saying, this is how it's going to be for those who follow me and those who don't. This is going to be their outcome. And he says it in a very poetic language and really sticks closely to the covenant blessings and covenant cursings that are laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. And just going back and looking at some of the, 
the ways that God will treat those who are His servants, right? He says He's going to act on their behalf. He's going to respond in faithful obedience, or they will respond in faithful obedience to Him. And this is what they're going to experience. He says they will inherit the promised land, right? These are covenant blessings. Their flocks will flourish in the land. They will have provision in verse 13. In verse 15, they will have reason for rejoicing because they followed the Lord. And they will be testimonies of the Lord's blessing. That's what verse 15 is talking about. Right? My servants will be called by another name. And they will have, verse 16 is talking about eternal happiness, which we'll talk about in the remainder of the sermon this morning. So that's the, the, the good part for the servants of God. Again, they're, they're going to have all the covenant blessings that are described in the Scriptures. This is what the Lord's telling Isaiah. But unfortunately, there's going to be those who, in the midst of all this, still reject the Lord. Even when they go into Babylon, into exile, they're still going to be resolute in their defiance and disobedience of the Lord. And this is going to be their outcome. He says, they have made him angry and they have repelled them, again, by their religious ways. And so therefore, God says, he will repay them for their sins they will die without the Lord. That's what verses 11 and 12 are talking about. Right? They're going to fall by the sword. They're going to be judged. And not only that, he says in verse 13, they're never going to be satisfied. Right? God's servants will drink and be satisfied. But those who don't follow the Lord, he says, they're never going to be satisfied. And in verse 14, he says, they're never going to really experience true joy. Right? They're going to weep and wail and have heavy hearts and a broken spirit. Again, this is the end of those who do not follow the Lord. And finally, he says, they will be a testimony of the Lord's judgment. Look at first, verse 15 again. He says, you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen one. It'd be like, oh, you don't want to be like old so-and-so because they fell under the curse of God. And so that's the contrast the Lord is saying, that those who follow after me, this is their end. Those who don't follow after me, this will be their end. And so that's, a, that's more of a, like, a temporal blessings and cursings. And then in, as we close out the, the rest of the text this morning, verses 17 and 24 talk about the future. He's going to talk about the future of God's people. So this is the, the, the future for those in the nation of Israel. And Isaiah's given them an ultimate promise. He's like, this isn't the final spot, though. There's so much more that the Lord has for His people. And that's what he talks about here in verses 17 through 25. Now, this future that he talks about here, there's no doubt that you've heard many scriptures that we're going to read about. And these scriptures are really describing, uh, Isaiah's describing aspects of the future with present day uh, examples. Right? He's using the examples that they're aware of to talk about how God's going to bless them in the future. Because as we read through these examples, and you're thinking these things, and I'm agreeing that these things have yet to happen. I think verses 17 through 25 are talking about the second coming. This is not only the nation of Israel's future, those who are faithful to Him, but this is your future and my future if we follow the Lord. 
if we are His. And again, He's describing the future using aspects of their present world. You know, to describe something that's going to happen in the future. Because as we read, you're going to say, well, that doesn't really fit into my end times model, right? My eschatological theology, for those of you that are really into theology, are end times. Because no matter if you take these, you, you take these things literal, they don't fit into anybody's the theological framework. These are all metaphorically speaking about the future, and, and you'll see that as I go on. And if you didn't catch any of that, you're like, I don't know what, eschata, who? You'll, you'll see. You want to go. That just means the study of end times, for those of you that didn't know that. Okay, what's going to happen in the end? This is your future, this is my future. Verse 17 says, For behold, I will create a new heaven and new earth. Right? We're all familiar with the new heavens and the new earth. God is saying here to Isaiah, tell your people this is their ultimate future. It's, it hasn't happened yet. It ha this has not yet happened. God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Everything that we see right now will no longer exist. And when he says former things, that includes the problems of this world and your troubles. They will be forgotten in the light of God's creation. What God has in store for us will make all those things that we worry about and stress out about fade away. As a matter of fact, in Romans 8.18 the Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. He's not saying, hey, suck it up. Don't worry about your problems. He's saying, you know what? These sufferings that we're going through right now, no matter how hard they are, they are not going to be worthy to what the Lord has in store for His people. And we're going to see what he has in store in a few moments. Moving on down the line, verse 18. He says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I created Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. So God is saying, God's people are going to enjoy this thing that He's created. You know, sometimes we think about what heaven's going to be like, and how am I going to really enjoy that? God's saying, yeah, you're going to enjoy it. He says, you're going to be glad and rejoice forever. Think of that. A constant uh, euphoric feeling in the new heavens and the new earth, in what God has created. Right? He's going to create a Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Verse 19 says, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. God, so not only are we going to rejoice, God's saying, I'm going to rejoice. God is going to be uh, joyful and excited. Why is that? Well, His total redemptive plan has been finished. A people that have been created for Him are finally perfect, so to speak. And not only that, all the works of sin and all the suffering of this world will no longer exist. The, 
it's in one way saying, hey, we can never make God sad anymore. We're never going to sin against the Lord anymore. Imagine you parents, if your children never did anything wrong, how that would make you feel. Your children were perfect 24-7. Doesn't that bring joy and gladness to your heart when your, your kids are good? They get along. They're not fighting. They're not being disobedient. I mean, that makes a parent's heart rejoice. And that's what God's saying here. That's not going to exist anymore. And then if you caught the end of verse 19, he says, the voice of weeping and the sound of crying is no longer going to be heard. Verse 20, no longer will there be in it an infant whose life is but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So what is he saying here? Again, verses 19 and 20 are basically saying there's going to be no more crying, there's going to be no more sadness. Why? Because death no longer is going to reign He's not saying, well, okay, kids, everyone's going to live to be 100. No, because it's eternity. Everybody lives forever, right? There's no death in the next life. So again, these are just ways of describing untimely death, unexpected death. Young children won't die early. Parents won't bury their children. And old men will, you know, they will live on forever. They won't, they'll live out their days He's poetically saying that, no, that death will not come to anybody. There will no longer be untimely death existing in the next world. Nothing that causes sorrow will exist. Nothing that inflicts pain will exist. This is the future of all those who trust in the Lord. Verse 21, he says this, They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen one will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For the days of the offspring of those blessed by for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord, and their descendants will eat them. What is he saying here? He's saying, you know what? No longer are you going to be building your, he uses a home, like you're not going to build a home and then not inhabit it because you die. Right? You're going to enjoy the fruits of your labor. You know, I don't know how many of you have projects around the house that you're like, I'm going to get that done one day. And you know, that day never comes. Or by the time I get this done, you know, you're saying I'm going to be dead and somebody else is going to enjoy it. Somebody else is going to move into my house that I've built up. I don't even get to enjoy it. You know, as I get closer and closer to retirement age, I know I look like I'm 20, but I'm not. I think of that. But am I going to be able to enjoy what I've been, you know, trying to build up with my wife? Am I going to be able to still hike by the time I retire or do all the, you know, walk around and enjoy what we like to do. He's saying here, yes, you will, because you're going to live forever. And, you know, you're, you're going to be perfectly healthy. You're going to enjoy all those things. You're going to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Right? Nobody's going to take over your home because you're always going to inhabit it. Is what he's saying. Right? You're going to be like a tree. But like for a lifetime of a tree, that means a long time. 
and, and we actually know it's forever. So you're going to have, what I put down here is that we'll have ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction. Right? We're finally going to be able to, to rest in all that, from, the, from the works of our hands. I like what the commentator John Oswalt said. He says, in God's kingdom, there will neither be futility nor frustration. There will neither be futility nor frustration, right? Because we're going to enjoy all that God has given us. In fact, we're probably not, I mean, I don't know, maybe we're not going to build anything anymore because it's all going to be built and we can just enjoy it. We don't have to spend time working on the weekend to make something and in my case, many weekends and never finish it. You know, I got this table that I've been probably been working on for like over a year. And now I'm making my wife park outside the garage because I'm going to get to it as it takes up the garage. If we were in heaven, it would be done already. Poor Mindy has to park outside. Verse 24. This is what God says. He says, Speak into the future. It will be also, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. What God is saying is God says, I'm going to be nearer to you than ever before. Right? It's going to be perfect communion with God. That's what's being described here. It's a closeness that we don't experience yet with our Lord and Savior. Although the Lord knows what we want before we ask, there's going to be a sense that it's, it's even more closer is what he's saying here. It's more real. It's a constant closeness and relationship with the Lord. You know, he's saying before you even ask it, I'm going to give it to you. Or I'm going to know what you want. It reminds me of, you know, your closeness with your spouse, right? They know what you already like. You don't even have to tell them and they can finish your sentences for you because they know what you're going to say. They say, no, you, like with my wife, she'll say, no, you don't like that. And I go, oh, yeah, you're right. I don't like that. I don't want to have that large fry. You're right. I don't need that. Like God knows what's best for you. He knows what you need. And this is what he's saying. In heaven, it's all going to be laid out for you. You're going to enjoy what God has in store and you're never going to be lacking anything. And this is described perfectly. You can flip over uh, to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. We'll actually read a few verses from here. Revelation 21, look at that with me. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, and then we're going to look at Revelation 24. Because these verses, I believe, are describing what Isaiah is talking about. And here in the book of Revelation... This is talking about eternity. Because after verse, in verse 1 of chapter 21, it says there's a new heaven and a new earth. But drop down to verse 3. Because this is particular, uh, I want to point out how God will be nearer to us than ever. It says this, Behold, a loud voice from the throne said, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Then look at verse, or chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. 
And it says this, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever. I think these verses here are speaking of that closeness that Isaiah is trying to describe in Isaiah 65. There's going to be a oneness with God. A relationship with God will be more intense. It will be magnified and enhanced. It will be complete. Because you know what? Our sins will no longer separate us from our God. And so this is what Isaiah is trying to describe. And as we look at the last verse of Isaiah, keep your finger here in Revelation. We're going to be right back. Isaiah 65, verse 25, he says this. In describing the future, the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in my holy mountain, says the Lord. What's he talking about here? He's talking about that peace in this new world will extend to every aspect of God's creation, even in nature. That's why he gives you the example of a wolf lying with or grazing together with the lamb. Usually the wolf would be eating the lamb. But no, they're in the pasture grazing together. Again, this is just how peace will affect all of God's creation. The damaging effects of the fall from Adam and Eve will, will be reversed. They will no longer exist even in the animal kingdom. The only thing, I don't know if you caught the one about the serpent, the only thing that will remain, look at the serpent, how it says, and dust will be the serpent's food. Well, that's right. Remember the curse that became this on the serpent in Genesis chapter 3? That's the only thing that will remain, the curse of sin. Sin will no longer exist. God will exist in God's kingdom. Sin is condemned forever. And that's the example that we get from the serpent still crawling around on his belly. And flip over with me to Gen uh, Revelation 22, 1 through 3, because this is a great picture of this new peaceful world and how this curse will no longer exist. It says this, Then he showed me a river of water, and of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing twelve fruits, twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. Right? We're going to have total peace. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. Because it's going to be total peace, right? Sin will no longer exist. Sin is that curse. Sin is a curse that spread not only through the human kingdom, but through the animal kingdom and all of creation. And God is saying here that this peace, there's going to be a new world that I create. There's going to be so much peace that it's going to even extend to the animal kingdom and the wolf and the lamb will graze together. This is the future for all those who follow the Lord. And this is Isaiah trying to comfort his people through what God was saying to him. And so for us this morning, what is God saying to, to us? What is God saying to you? What is God saying to me through this text? 
And I want to just give you four points of application as we close. And number one is this. As if God was speaking, I am nearer even when you don't deserve it. That's what we learned this morning. Each and every one of us did not deserve God's love, God's mercies, God's acceptance into His kingdom. But God is near even when you don't deserve it. And some of us need to hear that this morning because you might be thinking, well, hey, you know what? I don't really follow God that closely. I'm not the, you know, I'm not, I'm not the biggest saint. You know, maybe I haven't been in church in a while. I don't come to church that often. And God is saying, you know what? I'm near to you even when you don't deserve it. Because you know what? I've been here you know, every day for, like, not every day, but a long time, 16 years. And I don't deserve it any more than anybody else. Just because I have a you know, good attendance record at church. So God is saying, you know, I'm near even when you don't deserve it. Remember in the beginning of our text this morning, he's, God is saying, I'm here. I've been calling out to you, reaching out to you, even when you didn't deserve it. Not only that, God says, I'm near even when you refuse me. Even when you push God away, we've all pushed God away. Matter of fact, in one essence, every time we sin against the Lord, we've kind of pushed Him away because we reject that prompting of the Holy Spirit to don't do that. You know you're not supposed to do that. And we kind of push the Lord away. The Lord says, I'm near even when you refuse me. And the cure for that is always repentance, right? God's saying, I'm here when you're ready. I'm here. I'm reaching out to you. The only time you cannot return to the Lord is when you die. After you die, you have sealed your fate. And so I would say to those of you this morning who are saying, maybe I don't deserve it. I've even refused it. God is still saying, well, I'm still here. I'm still reaching out to you. I'm still kind of carrying you. I'm that one footstep. You, look, you see that one set of prints in your life. If you look back on it, that's me carrying you. Third thing that we can learn this morning is that God says, I am always near to my people. And we've seen that here through Isaiah. God was near with them the whole time. Even when they go off into exile and are disciplined, God is saying, I'm still here. Maybe some of you this morning feel like I'm under discipline of the Lord. The Lord has forsaken me. No, the Lord says, I'm still here with you. I'm always near to my people. And probably the greatest promise is this, is that I will be near to my people for all eternity. That's what we see pictured in Isaiah 17 through 25 and in those texts of Revelation is God saying, I'm always going to be near. God's going to physically come down in the person of Jesus Christ and live amongst us again, which will result in, as we've seen, total happiness, total security, and total peace. How many of us do not long for total happiness, total security, and total peace? And the reality is, is we will never experience that here on earth. We'll get glimpses of it. We'll have moments of it. But it can all be taken away at any moment, as we all know very, clear, very well. Nothing is promised in this life. But in the next life, we're promised so much more. And I pray that gives you hope and courage to know that, you know what, God is near to me, even now. 
And maybe you're feeling like, well, I don't know if he really is near to me. Well, I, I pray this morning that you would cry out to him, that you would cry out in repentance and ask God to come near to you, to forgive you of your sins, and to accept you as his child. If you've never done that, I pray that you would do that this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that we have examples in Scripture of your love and your patience and your mercy and your long-suffering. And we see that from Genesis to Revelation. And I pray this morning, Lord God, for those who are far from you, that they would cry out, and ask for your forgiveness, repent of their sins, and trust you for their salvation. And for those of us, Lord, who are your children, and maybe are in a moment or at a time in our life where we've kind of drifted away, we're kind of like those footprints in the sand where you've stopped and because we've gone away that you will not go, and we've walked away from you. I pray this morning that, that if somebody is here in that position, that they would cry out to you, that they would come running back to your open arms, just as you said to Israel, you've stretched your arms out all day to a rebellious people and that they would come home. And for the rest of us, Lord God, who are your children by your grace, that we would be comforted knowing that you are always near to us, even when we don't deserve it, even when we don't seek it, even when we refuse it. We thank you, Lord, for keeping your promise to never leave us or, or forsake us. We thank you for the promise that you will come back again to take us to this new creation, this new heaven and new earth that we long for, where we will experience eternal peace, eternal joy, eternal comfort. We look forward to that day, Lord God. Until then, may we, by your grace, may we cling tight to you and trust in your promises. And we pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.